On this episode of Deal and Extend, we discuss open source software on proprietary platforms. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for Linux? This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 81 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from around the DLN community, places like the Discourse Forums, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. We also snag topics from around the network and give you our takes. This week, we are missing Matt, the boogeyman of gaming. However, with me is Nate, the open Sousa mad scientist. How are you? <laughs> Mad scientist. I like that. I need one of those Van de Graaff generators now. That would just make the uh, transition complete into full madness. You've been doing all of this stuff on your house. I figured it fit perfectly. Well, I did send a, I don't want to say a lightning bolt, an electric spark out of my service panel in the cubicle labs at me, hooking things back up. Oops. Supposedly properly. Apparently it was wired improperly. So hooking it up improperly made it proper. Anyway, I'll sort that one out eventually, uh, hopefully without burning the place down because that'd be <laughs> tragic. Yeah, things are great. Now, I did have some fun this week since we last talked, installing PTC Creo on a Windows 10 machine. PTC Creo is what I used at my former employer. A fellow coworker asked me to help him install it on his computer. And the installation process was extremely frustrating. The whole license key thing, making sure everything worked. There's so much like sleight of hand that you have to do just to get the thing working without being part of some like large server pool. Dealing with Windows itself, as far as having like make registry modifications, I didn't do things 100% in the right order. So I had to like wipe everything out and then put everything back in just to make it work. Oh my goodness. It was incredibly frustrating. It was a multi-day process just to install a piece of software, a CAD piece of software. I blame Windows for being too Windowsy, And then I also blame PTC for making Creo so difficult to run on the system. It felt like duct tape and bailing wire just to keep the thing running. It's just how it felt. I know that's not accurate. I'm probably being unfair, but it was just so frustrating. And so when I got it done, my buddy says, hey, it's working great. Thank you very much. I'm like, hallelujah, please don't come back to me ever again. That's not what I said to him, because of course I will help <laughs> again. But I wanted to say, please don't bring this back to me. You know, who else does he know? Basically nobody. Actually, it motivated me to actually dig into FreeCAD a little bit harder again, because the license structure in FreeCAD is, it's an open source license, so it's free to use. There's not a complex process for installing. In fact, you can just download an app image. The app images are configured in such a way that if you want to add extensions to FreeCAD, it's a local dot file, so it doesn't matter. I just want to say thank you, FreeCAD, for existing, because PTC Creo was so frustrating to install in Windows 10. If I had to live life like that, I probably would quit computers altogether. That's how frustrating it was. That sounds like an absolute nightmare. It makes me glad that I, A, don't run Windows 10 and B, don't need this <laughs> piece of very specific proprietary software. So other than having the right license key, was there additional drivers you need? Was there like multiple installations from one program that made it an issue. What part of installing this yes. to both? Yes, to both. That wasn't so much a driver issue. It was more like multiple pieces of software and making sure they all work together because like there's like a licensed server thing that's not really a licensed server when it's local, but then making sure the data file that held the registration key had the right MAC address for the computer as well. So you had to get the right MAC address 
Yeah, so there's all these different little things you had to like make sure it was all tweaked correctly. So not a driver issue necessarily, but it's like multiple pieces of software that I all had to look to this. And then when I went to uninstall, to reinstall, to like start over, the process of uninstalling applications in Windows, that's a nightmare. It's clunky. Yeah, it's totally clunky. It's really great if people like it, but I did not like it at all. It just felt torturous, actually. As a callback to previous episode, I wanted to rage quit Windows 10 after two days or <laughs> after the first couple hours of working on it, basically. But I couldn't because... I promised the guy, sure, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Wendy, the question keeps being asked in the community, who is this Magneto? This got started on Hardware Addicts quite a while ago. And I know that I have filled in this blank there a couple episodes past. But there are some people that listen to this show and don't listen to that show. And so they have no idea where this Magneto person came from. And someone dropped me a line on Macedon and said, um, there's this Magneto person that you guys are talking about, and I have no clue who this is. So just to kind of <laughs> fill in that blank, Magneto is my husband. He got this nickname on Hardware Addicts because he is very destructive to technology in general, but one of the issues he has is just his natural biologic energy filled messes with all kinds of different things. So he struggles with Bluetooth headsets. I can wear it just fine, have no problems connecting, but if he looks down, the Bluetooth headset disconnects from his phone. He struggles to wear watches for the same reason. His grandpa couldn't wear a watch, period, because within a couple hours, it would die, and it was just attuned to the way their body works and the electrical field that is part of their body, and he has been dubbed Magneto because of this. And I will try to remember ever so often for new listeners that are coming into the show to kind of refresh who is Magneto. When you hear us talking about him, his needs for phones and such at this point, that's been the latest thing we've been talking about. That's my husband. He's the one that is extremely hard on technology. He knows he is. He has been an extremely good sport about all the talk we do about him on the shows and very accepting of the nickname he's been given by Ryan. So all this time, I thought you were married to a supervillain. So I guess that's not the case, huh? (laughs) (laughs) No, he really is a super nice guy. I absolutely love my husband. But But he is definitely hard on technology. Yeah, that's awesome. That's interesting that technology breaks around him. I know some people like that. I wonder if there is something to like somebody's frequency that they run at or whatever that causes some electrical components to die before others. I mean, I know when electronics die in my hands, it's because, you know, I'm kind of a bumbling idiot at times and break things. Or release the magic blue smoke. Yes. You know, oh, maybe I should not have inserted that way. (laughs) That was a mistake and poof, there it goes. I think there's something to be said for people who have a green thumb or people who don't have a digital thumb, stuff like that. I think there's probably something more to that than just kind of a colloquial statement of sorts. I think there needs to be some actual bench science. The advantage that he has with that that some people can't do, I believe they're called the witching sticks, whatever, but you take two metal rods and you can use them to find different lines, different pipes, if they're metal or electrical lines that are running under. So as he's walking along, if he's holding these sticks, when he hits a line, they'll cross. Hmm. It works great for him. It's very accurate if he's trying to fix something, especially trying to find where something is out in the field because he needs to dig it up and fix it. It's always really accurate for him. But because of that ability, 
it makes his life with technology extremely difficult. There have been times that I've been working on something at the computer and I can't get it to work. And he's like, fine, I'll leave. He walks out of the room. Works no problem. <laughs> I don't know how to do this, but check to see if he's putting off some sort of RF frequencies, you know, like naturally that causes this. That would be interesting. That would yeah. be very interesting. Fluke has this meter. I guess anyone makes it now. You clamp it around a wire and it can tell you how much power is traveling through it. It'd be neat if you could like do that around his finger or his, his wrist or something to see how much power is going through it. That's probably totally silly and wouldn't work. See if you actually get a reading from it. Yeah. I mean, I would do those things, con- try and conduct tests on him, him knowing <laughs> or not. <laughs> see, mad scientist. There we go. There we go. <laughs> this episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud native apps for way less money. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and containers. By running App Platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than any other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup, too. As a DLN Extend listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app on their App Platform for free. And it gets better. DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash dln. Again, go to do.co slash dln to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. All of your frustrations from this last week dealing with this proprietary software and this proprietary operating system kind of brought up the current topic that we are working on today. Is it all right? Is it a good thing for Linux? Is it a good thing for people on proprietary operating systems to have open source software on these proprietary platforms? You know, I think about this quite a bit as another callback to Twill broadcast on I think the 25th of October. Was it 24th? I don't know if I had my date straight. Michael was talking about how GIMP development has been slowed by having to fix issues on multiple operating systems. Things break with updates, so they have to constantly be on top of the interface breaking or display systems breaking and so forth within GIMP because of the changing underlying technology. And so it slows down the development on Linux where the development is more open. I don't know if you saw or heard about that at all. In the discourse forum, the Destination Linux discourse forum, there's a thread that KDE Connect is now on iOS. You know, when I initially read that, I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe this is a good thing because now that it opens up, you know, if I want to be able to control my computer through KDE Connect with like an iPad or something, a more ubiquitous tablet than other offerings out there, the potential of artists who can take advantage of the pen interface on the iPad, you know, could that be somehow used with Krita on Linux? Could you have a meshing of the two to actually be a better interface and actually be helpful to more than just Linux or iPad users? That sounds like a good thing. There's numerous applications that are open source that are now available on Windows as well as Linux and such. Now I'm asking the question, because I don't know that I have the right answer necessarily, but is it a good thing? The first thing that comes to mind when this topic got brought up was, yes, 
it is a good thing and it's a great way to expose people to open source software to some of these options that are out there there are certain people especially with the class that i'm dealing with right now in the one co-op there are certain applications that i can show them and there are certain applications that i've shown students in the past that because it is open source and because it is cross-platform with parents permission they can have those applications at home too. So while they're with me, they're using those applications on Linux. When they go home, they can continue to develop those skills, learn those programs, find more information, and later down the road when they have their own computer, they can choose to install Linux on it. Maybe they can have a conversation with the parents about changing operating systems on one computer if there are more than one, but it's definitely the first step in being able to take some of those applications, take some of those ideas, take some of those workflows home and be able to use them. That's the other side of the argument, isn't it? One side is you're removing the unique competitive advantage for using Linux, but if nobody has exposure to those applications, then what's the point of that unique competitive advantage, right? They can do Krita or GIMP or whatever application that you know, you're know you using in class, but if they can't use it at home without going through a bunch of hula hoops, you know, what's the point? How can that benefit them? So then I see the other side of that. But then I start to think also, could this potentially steal people from using Linux or people won't even use Linux at all because the software selection is larger, in many cases, easier to install on Windows and Mac? That would be the other side of it as well. Some people might not switch, may never switch because there is so much other stuff that they use on the Windows platform, on the Mac platform. And this one piece of open source software is all they need. The rest is proprietary. But I don't want to shut down this avenue for the people that will never switch. It is definitely better, I feel, to have those options out there to say, okay, take somebody that's frustrated with Windows. They have a certain workflow. They have certain applications that they still need to use. And if you're able to say, okay, look at this application, it's not going to be a direct translation from this one, you are going to have to learn new things. But if you want to break away from Windows, here's one way to do it. So that person has the ability to use the old application while they're learning the new one and slowly be able to break away. Now, there are other people that need to do just a straight cut and dry they need to not test those application on a Windows or a Mac system. They need to just dive wholeheartedly into something new. And that's what I had to do. If I'm in a situation where I've got the old familiar thing there, I'm still going to use the old familiar thing because I can get it done faster. Right. The only way I'm learning something new is if I'm shoved overboard and it's swim or die. <laughs> Yeah, in for a penny, in for a pound, that sort of way of looking at it. Yes, absolutely. But it gives people the option to slowly work over if they need to, or do it the straight up go the Linux way. My dad is on Linux right now. It actually took several years of talking to him 
and saying, hey, this is another option, especially as Windows 7 went out of date and it was like longer and longer of all of these vulnerabilities building up on a system that's no longer getting any patches where I'm like, dad, this isn't safe. And I had kind of put that out there for so long that he was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's try this. Now, did he have any experience with any open source applications prior to? Nope, not at all. Well, he was using Chrome, but Google. Right. I guess then that's actually a good point. He was using Chrome probably on a Chromebook or on Windows potentially. He was using it on a Windows system. Especially the time that he installed Chrome, you only used Internet Explorer to install Chrome because Internet Explorer was a great way to end up with a virus immediately. Right. Or just a bad web experience in general. Exactly. So he's already familiar with Chrome on Windows, so using Chrome on Linux. Did he use Chrome on Linux as well then? I actually installed Firefox for him with Bitwarden. Oh, good. Because we were talking about the fact that each website needs to have its own individual password. Mm-hmm. And it's better to not have passwords that someone hacked and got some of your other stuff, found your Facebook page, whatever. Couldn't just pull a name from one of your kids, grandkids, pets, you know, however people will name things so that they can remember it. Here's a way to randomize it. Here's a way to keep yourself secure. It locks it all up, makes it super easy. And you can have randomized passwords. So I did help walk him through this process. And it was at least two to three years of me ahead of time saying, hey, here's this option. Here's this alternative. One of the things that kept him from switching over for a while was Windows Movie Maker. And there was a feature in that that he really, really liked. He's not doing that sort of thing anymore. But if he wanted to pick it back up, I now have the knowledge that even if he was still on Windows, and if I was trying to get him to still upgrade from 7, I could say, hey, here is this additional application. I know how to do what you want to do. It's still really easy and show him how to make that change. Was it the transition sweeper effect in Windows Movie Maker where it's like the heart where you go from one movie reel to another transition through a heart? Is that what kept him on? He was taking two pictures and blending them together. So he was using the fade feature between two in order to get different creative images. Oh, that's an easy one. Yeah. So now it's pretty easy to do on a lot of different applications. I could show him how to do that in... In KDN Live, if he wanted to, I could easily show him how to do it in many different image manipulation software. Right. But because he's not doing that anymore, we haven't currently talked about that transition. It was one of those things that in those early days when I was saying, hey, we still got to get you off Windows 7, he didn't want to leave because of this one application and a feature that he knew how to do inside that application that he was using on a pretty regular basis. Well, I mean, he might get back to it. You never know. But yeah, it's good that you actually have an alternative. Absolutely. I mean, if you can do Windows Movie Maker, you can do Caden Live. That's just not a problem. Even OpenShot or any of them. Oh, yeah. They're super straightforward at this point. They're all pretty much the same. I mean, okay, don't throw rocks at me. I mean, obviously they have some differences, but they're pretty close. (laughs) They have some core features that have some similar ways of doing them. Exactly. I do want to jump back into this thing that you were talking about earlier and the slowing down of development on some of these open source pieces of software because of juggling multiple different platforms. 
And I know that they've been working for quite a while on GIMP trying to get to 3.0, where there is a lot more non-destructive features inside of that. It really makes sense that trying to deal with some of the complications of Mac and Windows, which GIMP does cover all three of these major platforms, they might even have a BSD option too. It's been quite a while since I've looked at the website directly, but it makes sense that juggling all of these different platforms while trying to make these major changes to the application would slow down that progress. I'm torn on that. I don't want to take that application away from these other platforms for the reasons that I said before, but at the same time, I really, really want more and more solid, non-destructive features to come to GIMP. So the selfish part of me says, drop it and give us all the super awesome features as fast as possible. The rest of me knows that I will be showing this application to students in a classroom or talking to somebody else in the real world, one of my friends, someone at the store, because sometimes you have weird conversations that pop up everywhere And I want to be able to say, oh, it doesn't matter that you're on Windows. Oh, it doesn't matter that you're running Mac. Here's a super awesome application that you can do X, Y, and Z on, and it can help you reach this goal. And I guess that's probably the balancing of it all, isn't it? We don't want the development to slow down, but at the same time, we don't want to cut people out, at least I don't, for the purpose of supporting the arts. So like in the case of GIMP or Krita, any of the video editors, you know, Caden Live is multi-platform as well. Having the ability to create the digital art on whatever platform to me is very important, but it makes me a little bit concerned then, will Linux become less of a focus because of it? Krita can be purchased on the Windows Store and that even funds the project more so. And they may even have more users on Windows now, perhaps. I don't know that for sure. I don't know if the user count is a possibility. You can also get it on Android. Right. Does that then shift the priority away from Linux as being a a platform of choice? I realize a lot of these software developers probably run on Linux, so that's going to be their primary platform. But what if the next developer doesn't or the next series of developers don't? Does Linux start to become less and less important? Obviously, there's more than that going on in the larger ecosystem, Steam Deck. The Linux numbers are ticking up bit by bit over time, so maybe that's not an issue. Windows 11 is going to cut a lot of people out of using Windows. Not yet, but in the future, maybe that's the other factor that I'm not taking into account. It concerns me on that side as well. I'm back and forth. I definitely understand that concern. I choose not to worry, ultimately. I just wonder sometimes, you know, is it helping or hurting? KDE Connect on iOS, I just think it's a great thing. You know, it's an open source application. Got it. But having it on iOS opens up more users. Is that more of a gateway for people to be like, oh yeah, I can use Linux too because of this feature? Or does it maybe say, no, I'm not going to get the PinePhone Pro because I can just use my iOS device. I'm just as well here. It's a balancing act. To make decisions on any of it based in fear of something is probably not the right answer. Yeah. When it comes to applications dropping Linux, because they are getting more support on Mac or Windows, Android, whatever platform that they're using, that probably comes down to the base, the developers who are working on that application and the core philosophy behind the application itself, how it got started. Are there some applications that start to not give Linux as much support as they used to? Yeah, We've talked about Firefox and that case too. They come out with these additional add-ons for Firefox or whatever Mozilla's doing and Linux seems to be the last one to get it or it's limited on which distributions they're releasing it for. We've seen that happen. 
is that something that I feel is going to happen with Krita, Gimp, Darktable, a lot of these other applications? Not really. I strongly feel that the people that are creating these applications, A, love the work they're doing, and the reason why they started distributing them on additional platforms was because they wanted these opportunities available for everybody. They wanted everybody to be able to use this powerful software, and having more eyes on the software at the same time helps to find additional bugs, it helps to bring in different ideas for features that can be added to it. So it's always a possibility that you can have an open source project that still stays open source, but they drop a platform just because they find it's not worth their time. But I don't see that being dominant within our community just because the community itself is so focused on having the software available to as many people as possible. Yeah. And I think that despite my apprehensions, I think that's more the right answer, making the software available because I believe in software freedom and that might be the freedom to run it on the wrong operating system. (laughs) It should still be free for people to do with the software as they wish. At the end of the day, it really is for the art, especially in any kind of the content creation type tools. It's for the art or for accomplishing a task. I really believe actually having that kind of openness with software makes you more attractive. The community is more attractive when you say, yeah, you know, come bring your broken Mac and Windows machine. We will help you fix it up rather than you're not running Linux. I don't really want to talk to you. So I think it makes you more approachable, more generous, more caring. I think that's just going to attract more people. Even around me, I've seen more Linux users now. I mean, it's not really that uncommon anymore. People kind of know what Linux is, it seems like. Maybe just because they're tired of hearing me say stuff about it, but it seems like there's more people just using it. I think at the end of the day, it really is probably a good thing to have open source software on proprietary platforms. I'd rather have it the other way around, proprietary software on my open source platform, and I can just kick it off whenever I feel like it. But, you know, that's me. I can't say that my way is the more right way for somebody else, but it is the more right way for me. Options. All about options. Mix and match. Like, build your own burger. It is now your turn to share. Make sure you're dropping us a line in the discourse form, hitting us up on our different favorite social media networks, or head over onto The Element. There's many different ways in order to connect. What do you think about open source software on proprietary platforms, and maybe a little bit of vice versa. We're ready to hear from you. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the passive manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have, and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend.
It's time for the next step in making your home exactly what you want it to be and all of these upgrades. What have you got next? I took the big plunge here and I bought a 9,000 watt vertical axis windmill. I don't believe I'm going to get 9,000 watts out of it because you have to run it at maximum for that. So I'm hoping for about 1,000 watts, like nominal, day in and day out, 12 hours a day. That's what I'm kind of calculating against. One ninth of the maximum is what I'm hoping for. I don't know exactly how I'm going to install this yet. The papers, the documentation on it, not real great. I bought the windmill, should be arriving, I think, by Friday this week. I'm hoping to put it together and then figure out how I'm going to actually mount the thing. I got some options, probably mount it up against the building, cubicle labs. So it's, you know, nearby the panel, essentially, so I can make sure I get power coming into the building easily. Probably not by the panel, but anyway, good upgrade for my place because part of my goal of, you know, doing the home assistant and everything else is I want to be able to manage my own power consumption. And also I have the space, I have the clearances around. So I'd like to be able to then also produce electricity and put it back on the grid and or just, you know, offset my electrical footprint. I love technology. I love having computers and screens all around me. And rather than just pay money to the electrical company for being able to use this, I'd like to be able to not have to pay them to enjoy my electronics because between solar and wind, there's other forms of ways for me to produce electricity. This is a good way to experiment. I've already got a charge controller that this should work with. I have to do some digging in that thing as well, but has a battery backup system. And it would only do a few plugs at this point. I'll probably link it up then with the labs to keep my computers powered. You know, I don't need to keep the lights on necessarily. I just want to keep the fans and the motherboards processing. I'm making the next step. I don't really know what I'm doing. I've been doing just tons of reading. I'm trying to connect some people who actually know more about this. I did actually connect with somebody on the discourse forum, thankfully, about it. I can't remember who now, so good job me. But uh, there's a lot of resources out there. It's just a matter of making some clarity with all the noise of information. I don't know how quickly I'm going to get this operational, but I'm hoping soon because we're getting into our windy months here with the wintertime. The wind is always ripping. And if I can get, not asking for much, 1,000 watts for 12 hours a day out of that windmill, that would be more than enough to cover all of my power consumption back here for sure. That is awesome. So you've purchased it. Has it arrived yet? Or are you still waiting for it to arrive? I'm still waiting. It's tracking to be here, I think, on Friday. So we'll see if it actually shows up on Friday. Uh, nothing is showing up on time right now. I'm uh, still waiting for some more smart switches that I ordered two weeks ago. We'll see when this actually arrives. I understand that frustration point. I had a package that was supposed to be here yesterday and it didn't. So we'll see when it shows up too. I'll certainly let you know when it does and, and what I think of it. There'll be updates on this about the episodes here of DLN Extend. Looking forward to it. So I guess you have some updates on a class for working on computers? Yes, absolutely. All of those computers that were given to me are being put to great use on our Thursday co-op where I've been teaching a computer class. We're just doing some basic HTML and CSS stuff right now. And there are certain things that I plan that we're going to get through in our amount of time that we have. Of course, our full class time we don't get. I've mentioned this before. There's somebody in that classroom beforehand. I am in a different class beforehand as well, so I can't do any of the pre-setup stuff. There is a certain amount of time of setup in the beginning, and I figured we were going to be getting through some stuff pretty gosh dang quickly this last week. And the kids were having so much fun with some of the HTML tags and specifically the image HTML tags that it took up a massive chunk of class. So we're probably not going to get as far in this project as I wanted to. But the kids are absolutely having a blast with it. And it was so great to see them as some of the stuff is starting to click and they're pulling images into their HTML files and seeing how it all works. And we have an additional update on those computers too. 
So one of the things that we had talked about doing was getting OpenSUSE on them and having the educational support for that. So being able to teach additional classes using the OpenSUSE curriculum, which would be fantastic for the students and would be a lot of fun for me. If you are a patron for This Week in Linux, you might have saw what was going on with Bill, Neil, and Frank. They got together and were taking these laptops. Now I have to explain a little bit more about them. These are pieces of hardware that you would typically find Matt using. They are not your standard hardware. (laughs) The laptop in and of itself, the keyboard looks normal, but they have a pen that can come in and out of the base of the keyboard. The monitor can swivel all the way around and lay flat on the keyboard. I might have to share a picture. I think you should. On the discourse form when this episode goes up. So that way you can actually see better how they all work because it's kind of hard to describe them accurately. You'd really just have to see them. They're touchscreen. They have Wacom technology built in. And they've been a little bit difficult getting most distros to run on them just because of the funky hardware that they have going on. Right now, they're all running Kubuntu, which seems to be working great for the kids right now. But the plan is to get OpenSUSE on them. So they are trying to figure out, okay, what are some of the issues that we're having in getting this operating system to run? And what are the steps we need to take in order to get it working properly? I don't know how long I was on that live stream, but it was an amazingly long time. It was long enough that I was able to get my desk cleaned off. I got a bunch of laundry put away and a few other things done while chatting with all of the awesome people that were hanging out on Saturday after this week in Linux and watching them work on these laptops. I am extremely thankful for the community and for everyone who is putting in additional time for my little co-op in Idaho. Thanks again, Bill, Nil, and Frank for all of your help on this project for our homeschool co-op. You're awesome, and we love you. I mean, I got to say, having run OpenSUSE, that just excites me, and I'm not even going to be in your class, so uh, you know, for what it's <laughs> worth. But it's awesome that they are helping you with this, I guess, esoteric or obscure hardware to get it working very well. Is there some particular piece of the hardware that's not working well with OpenSUSE? Is it like a, a missing driver or some function of the kernel that's not activated? So there's a line that needs to be added in Grub configuration in that Grub defaults. Then there are additional issues they're having with screen rotation. So sometimes it's rotating and sometimes it's not. For our main purposes, the kids really aren't rotating the screen too much. Though I have talked to my daughter about potentially using these laptops and us co-mentoring a class where mainly she's doing the teaching on using these tablets to draw using Krita, but I'm providing the hardware and the hardware support. She really likes that idea. These laptops would be great for that if we can get the full rotation and that to work. Touchscreen seems to be working out of the box just fine, no problem. There were some additional issues that they were having, but I didn't write them down at the time that they were going through some of it, but the screen rotation was definitely one of the issues that they were having. So as long as they can boot completely and the main system works as we need it to, then that's all I need at this point. There's additional features that can come later as we're working through it. 
But I have to say, even though this hardware can be a little tricky at times, I am so thankful for these laptops. And I have mentioned before, I didn't think we would use the screen rotation, especially in this HTML CSS class, but we actually use the screen rotation almost every day. Hmm. It's a small room. We've got two long tables. We push them a little bit to the side so I can fit through the middle of the tables. And then as I'm talking to kids and working on things, they can just turn their screen around, show me what the issue is. So sometimes I've added this HTML tag, specifically the one for images, because there was a lot of stuff with images that I had to correct or go back and change for them. Formatting is the hardest thing when it comes to HTML for the classroom. It's not that they don't understand it. It's we have to remember to format things properly. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a few formatting stuff. That's typically what I'm fixing. They can just turn the screen around. I can be like, oh, yep, here's your issue. They fix it. And then they're able to load their creation into a browser and actually get to see it working. That's cool. Really cool pieces of hardware. Just a little extra work needing to be done so we can get to the end goal or the next goal of having OpenSUSE running on them. I look forward to hearing more about this as it progresses. Anything I've said to you before, you know, I would like to do something like that for my local co-op as well. Maybe offer some sort of a class or whatever for people who are interested. And the question has always been like, well, what would I teach them? This is a great class to teach them, basic HTML. I'm sure other things too, but you know, maybe teach them basic Python programming or whatever else. Something else that I know, maybe some sort of class on electronics class. Even showing them Lego CAD and how that works oh, yeah. and how to build things inside their computer. Yeah, that'd be fun too. A Lego CAD be very relatable. It can be a shorter class, but you can go through the different modules of this is how you do this. This is how you do this. Kind of teach them design attention. Yeah, that's a great idea. I can kind of think of that. Man, Wendy, you are just a veritable fountain of good ideas. I think you'd be great at it. Thanks. Well, thank you. I'm glad I can be the test subject for you. And once we have this all running and off the ground, I am more than happy to share all of my experience and what we did to make it work when you are ready to jump into that project yourself. Excellent. That'll be great. Noodle that around, maybe do some, you know, socialize the idea with maybe some other parents and such that I interact with for a simple class. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and all of our shows at destinationlinux.network. If you would like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description or drop us a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag along with stuff from across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Welcome to episode 80 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. 81. We take conversations from around the DLN community from places like... <laughs> Uh, you're welcome <laughs> yeah thank you mm -hmm. i just released 80 so on the brain yeah i don't want to redo that one let's move on